Welcome to the Redeemer Lincoln Square podcast. Our church began in April of 2017 and is located just down the street from Lincoln Center in the Lincoln Square neighborhood of Manhattan. Our channel will primarily feature sermons from our Sunday worship service, as well as encouraging stories and conversations with members of our LSQ church family. We hope you'll subscribe as a way to stay connected during this season of uncertainty and social distancing. Today's reading is from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 18 through 23. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Thanks, Hudson. <clears throat> Thank you. And good morning and welcome again to Redeemer Lincoln Square. If you're new here and there's a lot of new people in the city, Special welcome to you as well. I'm glad you're here. Um, I echo Bruce. If you're listening from home and you could be here, we very much are looking forward to relearning to being together in person again with you. And I've, I've said this recently. I'll say it again. Just the, the pandemic, our relationships have, have thinned out. We've, we've uh, forgotten the habits of what it looks like to re-engage uh, and be together. So I'm looking forward to relearning uh, that together. Now, to help us, we've been going through a little mini-series looking at the offices of Jesus. And today we're wrapping up that mini-series. We looked at Jesus as as prophet, Jesus as priest, and today we're going to wrap up by looking at Jesus as, as king. Looking at this prayer from Paul to the people of Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 1. I don't know if you saw this a couple of weeks ago. David Brooks had a, a, an article in the New York Times just looking at trends in America. And he pointed out that uh, in 2020, Americans actually drove 13% less, but actually traffic deaths skyrocketed. And he asked the question, he said, what, how is it that, you know, we're seeing each other less, but we're killing each other more? He also noticed and uh, commented on the fact that uh, um, altercations in airplanes has also increased, even though we're flying less. As a society, uh, you know, I don't know if you noticed this, they never closed down the liquor stores during the pandemic, that our, our drinking habits skyrocketed during the pandemic, abuse of drugs more than ever. Now, a lot of folks will say, well, this is because of the pandemic. It's the stress of that. That's, that's why, and I'm sure that's part of it, but drug deaths have been increasing for the past 20 years. Um, our connection to each other, the amount of, of friendships that we report of having has decreased over the past 20 years. Also uh, increasing our rates of depression and loneliness and those have been up across the board for, for, for many, many years. What we're really rec- witnessing is the very fabric of society, the connection, the community. Uh, it's unraveling before our eyes. This was written 
uh, decades ago, right, you have um, fa- the famous book, Bowling Alone, where participation in social organizations as a whole is just on the steep decline. In that context, what does Paul have to say to us? What is his prayer to the people of Ephesus, but then also to us as well? That's what I want to look at today. I, personally, I don't know if you've done this. Um, I, I like this town for many reasons, but one of the reasons why is because I like to go into cathedrals with their beautiful stained glass windows. And um, it's, there's nothing like going into a place and the, all the windows are stained glass. And there's two ways to observe the beauty there. One way I like to go is I call it the, the micro beauty ways. I like to go up to the, the actual stained glass and I like to uh, look at the workmanship and the paint and the art and get really up close to look at the fine details. But sometimes I just like to go back to like a central location and, and just let the full beauty of the, all the, the um, stained glass to affect me. Sort of the macro view. Let, let, let the art hit you all at once. Today, I, I'm, we're not going to do the micro view. We're not going to go word by word in, into Paul's uh, prayer. What I want to do is I want to do a macro view. I want to pull out. I want to see three broad strokes. We're going to look at three broad strokes that we see here in the text, and I'm going to read them to you. It's one, that there's an already but not yet kingdom. Two, there's the upside down and inside out kingdom. And then three, the kingdom that we don't see, but we really should. So let's look at the first, the already but not yet kingdom, the upside down kingdom, and then the kingdom that we should see, but we, we don't. All right, so first, the already but not yet kingdom. Go to Paul's prayer here. We're going to skip down to kind of where he starts to conclude in verse 21. In verse 21, he says, he hopes that we see Christ as king, who is, look what it says, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only, here's the key phrase, not only in the present age, but also the age to come. This is a huge theological point in a teeny-weeny little phrase. What Paul's trying to get at here is that Christ, you see verse 21, he has all authority in this present age and the one to come. So in this present age, that means Jesus is ruling right now. We know this from Romans chapter 8, verse 28. It says there that all things God works for the good of those who love him. Of course, Paul couldn't say that unless somehow, in some way, all the evil, all the bad, all the things that we just sort of listed, somehow Christ is still ruling in that world. Even crazier, he is using those things as the means by which he's getting his plan done. What's a plan? A plan is anything that you and I, it's the blueprints by which we execute making something happen. So when you have a wedding plan, or if you have a party plan, right, you draw up what is needed, and then you execute it. And so when we plan something, we want something to happen, and we do it. And so this text is saying, in that little phrase, that God is using all his rule and authority, power and dominion, to make his plan happen. Now, of course— the first question you should ask now is, well, then how do we account for all the brokenness then? Uh, my parents studied at the same seminary where I went, but years before me, she, uh, they studied underneath a woman named Elizabeth Elliot. And uh, as a professor there, she actually made a book, a fictional book, about a missionary who goes to a certain section of, of the rainforest to translate the Bible for an, an indigenous population that lived there. 
in this book, uh, this missionary is, is killed. And when, when it came out, many people were upset about this book. They, they, they wrote letters, angry letters to her saying, How can, why would you say this? I mean, God would not let good Christian missionaries die. Which is funny because actually the book was uh, essentially based on her real life uh, uh, experiences. That her husband, Jim Elliott, as well as other missionaries, the night before they went into the rainforest, they sang hymns. And one of the lyrics of the hymns was this, Be our shield and defender. Dear Lord, they were, they were singing, Be our shield and defender. And the next day they were killed. Why would God let that happen? Uh, I remember my parents telling me that uh, Elizabeth Elliot essentially said, the answer that she came up with is this, is if I demand in that moment an answer, I'm actually dethroning God from his authority and dominion over all things. Right, that if he is God and he's worthy of my praise and service, I will find my rest in no one else, and his answers are going to be beyond any notion that I can come up with. In other words, I don't have the foggiest clue why he's letting this happen. But it doesn't mean he's not king. And so what she says then is essentially the, the worst thing that can happen to her, she lost her husband. And yet she's saying it's still not outside of Romans 8, 28, that God works all things for the good of those who love him. Jim Elliott did more for the work of the kingdom in his death than in his life because of all the missionaries that were inspired that went out from that. And so remember the, the song that they were singing, Be Our Shield and Defender. Maybe God was defending and shielding them from something worse. I don't know. Ultimately, we don't know for why that happens. But if we believe that there's an afterlife, that we will be with our Lord and King for trillions and trillions of years, if somebody dies 30 or 40 years early, in the, in the pan of trillions of years, that is not even a drop of time, statistically speaking. He's still King and Lord over all things. And here's the question, do we live that way? Do we see that there is no circumstance that actually would change that? Does that inform our decisions? Let me put it a different way. Do we see that maybe the hurts in our life are actually helps? Is it possible that maybe your loneliness is a way for him to call you out of that loneliness towards him? Or maybe you're losing that money, maybe having that hardship in your life is just so that you could discover the riches that could only be found in him. Right? That's what, that's what Paul means, that he's, he is king of this age despite what we think is going on, despite what we see is going on. The text says that. Now, it also says he's, he's king of the age to come, which is an interesting thing, because then that means there's something wrong. This, that means this is not the final destination. That means this is not A-OK. -okay. That there's going to be a future that will be different. This is where Psalm 96 can be helpful. There it talks about how in the kingdom to come, the trees are going to sing. And if the trees can sing there, and we can sing now, what do you think that we'll be able to do? And so I, you can almost feel the optimism here. Jesus is king now, but he's also the king to come, which means there's something that needs to change. And Paul is being so balanced here. He's not being balanced between a little bit of optimism and a little bit of pessimism. The Christian faith is more optimistic than the world's optimism because you know what? It says this world is not that— the final destination. This is not the way it's supposed to be. 
And yet it's more pessimistic than the world's pessimism because your problems aren't just physical. They're spiritual. That we can't actually save ourselves. And so if the trees are going to sing, I I don't know, maybe we'll be able to fly. I don't know. But what if I told you that whatever mess that you're in right now, whatever you're trying to do to earn your salvation or or be presentable or to feel like you have self-worth, God doesn't need that to accept you and love you. He already does. He already is the king of this present age and the age to come. And that means if you're tired of being alone, right? Loneliness has, has been a, a theme of, of meeting a lot of you the, this, this past fall and spring. The relational disconnection that you feel is actually real. That it, this, this connection started in the garden, but in the kingdom to come, it's going to be healed. That you will never ultimately fully really ever be alone then. Not for all eternity. That means he's present. If he's present king, he's in your pain now. But if he's king of the age to come, then, that, then you will be with him in the future. That is living this life in the already but not yet. That's how you can say, I can put myself under his kingship, but I'm waiting. I can't wait until I'm under his kingship at the same time. All right, that's what already but not yet. At Redeemer Lincoln Square, we value questions and the people who ask them, which is why we hold a time of question and response, or Q&R, after our Sunday worship service. It's an opportunity for anyone to text in questions and then process responses alongside our pastors and other members of our church community. If you have questions that you'd like to process, feel free to email us at lsq at redeemer.com or Join us for our virtual worship service on YouTube every Sunday at 10.30 a.m. Eastern. You can find our YouTube channel at lincolnsquare.redeemer.com slash YouTube. Secondly, it's, upside, it's an upside-down kingdom. When Paul's praying, he's saying, oh, you need to know, you need to know this already, but not yet. But you also need to know it's upside-down and inside-out. Look at verse 19. As he's praying, he says, I'm praying for you that the power that is found in Jesus, for you to realize that that power can be a strength, it can be a a steadying force in your life. Because he says this, he says, it's the same power that is the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms. And I think we breeze by that. We don't really see how amazing this is. This is an amazing statement. Paul is saying, you don't get it. You don't realize the power that is available to you. The power that is in you right now, in this very moment, is the very same kind of power that raised Christ from the dead. That's, that's not just fascinating. It's amazing. Of course, it, to be, for me, the first thing, thing I did when I read that was, wait a second, if that is such a great power— Why didn't that power prevent the pain and the hurt and the hardship that Jesus experienced? Why didn't it stop the torture and the death and the pain? And for Christians that believe in this power, why do we continue to hurt? Right, notice, if you're paying attention, I still didn't answer that question, did I? From the, in the first point, why does he allow this stuff to still happen? All I said was, well, just because you can't give a reason doesn't mean there isn't one. But we still ask the question, what, why not? I mean, sorry, why does he still let this happen? 
Maybe if you're not a Christian today, this is the question you should ask. Where's the power? What, what, what power should I really be hoping in and, 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 and desiring for? And the answer that Paul gives is so subtle. He says, oh, there is power. But it's not the power that you expect. Because Jesus' power, read it again. He exerted it when he raised Christ from the dead. This power is a subtle power that doesn't work de- despite weakness, but it works through the weakness. I think this is what's so counterintuitive. We always think weakness and power are diametrically opposed, that you can't have one and the other. But actually, Jesus, we see his power increases when he loses it. His power, he has power the moment he gives up power. If Jesus has come, in other words, if Jesus just came for the strong, for the powerful, then the only way that you can access that is if you are powerful and strong to get into it. But because he comes in weakness, then in our weakness, we can be saved too. So there's a a lot of chatter right now about power, right? We're talking about political power today. Uh, There's the left ideologies. There's the right ideologies. I don't know if you've heard the phrase, you know, uh, use your power, own your power. But I think what the problem with that is that despite all the conversation, we miss the true power of Christianity that is upside out, upside down, and inside out. That real Christian power is not oppressive. Because the way to have power in Christianity is to give power away. The way to actually be truly happy in Christianity is to seek the happiness of that other person. And so the way up is the way down. It's countercultural. It's counterintuitive. It's the opposite from how the world thinks of power. The world says, don't, don't sacrifice for somebody who doesn't love you or care for you. Don't give that, that power up. Don't give it away. But Christian power, the center of it dies for others. Why? Because the, the core of Christian power is a man who dies for his enemies. And so if you place him at the core of who you are, you will die for your enemies. And that is power because the world doesn't understand it. If the center of Christianity is a man who centers other people, and you place him at the center of your life, you will center other people. Not because you have to. Why? Because he centered you first. And so I guess the question, when I started realizing this, I said, wait, do I wake up every day realizing that this resurrection power is actually in me? Do you wake up every day saying, this power, the same power that is behind the universe, that that triggered the resurrection, that brings renewal for all of creation, lives in me. And if he died for you, then you can die for others. Because let let me try to make it practical. Resurrection power means this. Think of other powers in the world. There is no weight gain. There's no body image. There's no money trouble. There's no relational issues ultimately can have power over you anymore. Think about those. Those are all powers. What's weight gain and body issues? That's the power of beauty. What's money issues? It's the power of comfort because, right, money buys anything. What's relational issues? It's the power of people. Those are all powers that operate in your life But those other powers can only hold, they can only have a hold on you to the degree that you don't let resurrection power be the center of your life. So go back to the text. Read it again. Paul says, I pray for you to understand that this power is in you. It's the same mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. 
Do we recognize, but we probably don't, this upside down and inside out power that resides in you? It is a mysterious power, but it's a transformational power, and it will allow you not to let these other powers have a hold on you. All right, last point. The kingdom is already but not yet, right? Broad stroke. The kingdom is upside down, inside out, broad stroke. But lastly, the kingdom we don't see, but we should. We're doing this in reverse now. Go back to the very beginning of the, of the text. Remember we said it's a prayer. So it says here in verse 18, I pray. But what's he specifically praying for? He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart will be enlightened. What, what are the, so your heart biblically is the center of your reality. It's your, it's your identity. It's the core of who you are. And the eyes of your heart, eyes were considered the windows to your soul. And so he's saying, I want the eyes of your heart to be enlightened. By the way, if he's praying for that, it means the eyes of our hearts are not enlightened. Enlightened to what? Well, it goes on. He says that you may know the hope to which you're called and the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. He says, that's what you need. And so go, why do we need that? Go back to all the ills of society. Go back to the ills that, of, of us. The reason we're unhappy, the reason why we're lashing out at others right now, the reason why we're ODing on drugs, amusing ourselves to death, the reason why we sit in our homes with these little boxes flipping to the very next dopamine hit is because we're so anxious and so troubled because Paul's saying you don't remember. I pray that the eyes of your heart will be enlightened. Enlightened. I, I'm, I started hearing the original Lion King, right? When Mufasa says to Simba, right? You are more than you have become. Remember who you are. I don't have the James Earl Jones voice, but you almost have this. You get to hear that. You've forgotten who you are. Paul's saying the same thing. What have we forgotten? The two things he lists, the first thing is the hope to which you've been called. Quick definition. What's hope? Hope is just the trust that the future will be present and real one day in your life, right? The hope is the trust in a future that will come but is not yet present in your life. Best definition I've heard of this goes like this. Let's say two people are doing the same exact job. Same exact job. One person is making $15,000 for that job. It is a terrible job. It is a crummy job. It is a boring job. It is a stinky, junky, smelly job. Think of that for you. Just, you read your own definition to that. But imagine there's a terrible job. One person's making 15000 They get up every day grumpy about that job. Hates life. Hates why. Why am I even doing this job? Same, another person, same exact job. They're making $15 million a year for that job. How do they wake up? <laughs> they go to work whistling while they work. Why? Because they know what is going to come at the end of it, which is proof, by the way, your biggest problem are not your circumstances. Because you could get through even a junky, terrible job if you knew the hope that you have at the end. Which means when we say, oh, you know what, I'd be better if I could just change my circumstances, that's not true. Because guess what would happen? If you change your circumstances and that thing that you thought was the problem, that gets resolved, you'll have another one. The circumstances aren't the biggest problem. It's the, the problem is your lack of hope. Or it's the hope that you are holding on to 
that's not going to be enough. See, what we really need, if you knew at the end of the day there would be high beauty and comfort and peace and love forever after, you too could go whistle while you work in any circumstance, whatever it might be. And so what is your hope in? Right? Is it, if the hope is in your accomplishments, if it's in your health, if it's in your comfort, if it's in whatever future thing, right? Remember, hope is just, it's that future thing that you are looking to to make today bearable. Whatever it is, unless it's him, it won't be able to handle the circumstances that will come. It's his grace. It's that he called you to him. It's that he's given you all things that you ultimately need to handle today, not tomorrow. He's given you enough grace to handle today. And when he's called us, he, what, what, how's the song go? My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Paul says, please see the hope, the real hope that you've been called to. It's not that hope, it's this hope, number one. Two, and lastly, he says, remember the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. Now, that's a mouthful, and it's like, What's he getting at? But when you, start, when, you, when you parse it out, it's amazing. Most of us, if you're middle class, most of us have something precious that we own. I don't know what it is for you. Maybe it's an heirloom. Maybe it's—I uh, thought about it for myself. I said, what's the—I have, some, I have a, a box of comic books that are—I think they're going to be worth something. Maybe they're not right now. But one day they're going to be worth something, and they're, they're precious to me. Um, think about what you have that you value. And now, compare that. What do you think God values? Imagine uh, you needed to buy a, a Christmas present for a billionaire. Insert billionaire's name, Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, him or her, whatever, whoever that billionaire is. Imagine you have to buy them a present. What do you get somebody who has everything already? I was thinking about this too. I was like, maybe the Mona Lisa. That would be, it's not just anything. I want you to try to pick a Christmas gift that when they got it, they would say, this is the most precious thing in my whole, uh, you know, treasure chest of stuff that I have. Like, what would be a gift that you could give a billionaire that they would say, this is the most important thing in my life? A Mona Lisa, maybe a private island. Um, I mean, I don't know. What do you get somebody who has everything? And see, I think that's what's so amazing is the creator God of the universe who has everything. Paul here is saying is the riches of his inheritance. Oh, oh, what are they? Is in his holy people. The riches, translation, the riches of God is you. You are the thing that he says is my most prized possession. You are what he finds most precious to him. You are what is the most valuable thing to him. And Paul is saying, if you don't get that, you're never going to understand. You're never going to remember who you really are. That you are his inheritance. You don't really see, you don't know how loved you truly are. There's a um, character in Harry Potter. I'm not going to ruin the series for you. But there's a character at the very end of the book where you learn everything this person did. Right? Even the things that you don't quite understand why he did them, everything he did was always out of love for another character. And when we learn of this surprise, that through the, that person's pain, through their actions, even when we couldn't tell how those actions were really helping, like all along we actually thought those actions were hurting, 
But through it all, his loneliness and his rejection, being misunderstood by everybody, he went through it all because it was all done in service for the love of this other character. It's only then, when you get to the end, that you say, and you realize, oh my gosh, I did not know the extent of his love. It is the exact same truth for us. Right? That at the end of the day, we need to see how all his actions, even the ones that we're not sure are really helping, we thought they were hurting. No, they are actually all done for you. And if you knew that, if you really, really, really knew that, then that means your true wealth is the fact that you are his wealth. That means your real wealth is knowing how cosmically loved you really are. Not just favored. See, oh, thank you. You, you favor me. No. But that you, he treasures you. That you are a treasure. That you are the love of his life. And to the degree that you know that, to that degree, does everything else fall in place. In fact, if you don't know of this love, I promise you, you will go looking for this love from somewhere else or from someone else, and it won't work. Right? Books are littered with this. Uh, Studies are done proving this, that time and time again, the things that humans look to are never enough. But if you had this love, if you meditated on this, just this text regularly, on this one verse, so that the eyes of your heart would be opened, there would be room for you to go deeper into the beauty of his love, and the depths of his heart is found in the profoundness of the cross, which is essentially screaming from all of time and existence, saying, it was all done for you. It had always been done for you. That is why Jesus can be king of this life and the next, the already but not yet. It's also the how he can be king. Because what, is that? what does the cross do? The cross is the ultimate example and proof of the upside-down kingdom. That when he gives up all his riches and all his, his glory and all his honor and dies and gives it up, that lets the power come out into the world and into your life. So now, if you dwell on that, if you know that, you can give power away. In fact, I would actually say, you know that you have no true power if you feel like you have to hold on to it. Real power is, is the stuff that you can say, here, I don't need this anymore. You need it more than I do. The fact that he has made his glorious inheritance, the fact that he's made us his glorious inheritance befuddles me. Because at the end of the day, I I still say, I don't know, I don't see, I don't see what he sees in me, which is fascinating, isn't it? That it means that there's something about you that even you don't know is valuable enough for him to give up all of time and existence for. To go up heaven and earth. But if we sat in in the nature of his love, if we fed our mind on, if we tasted the fountain of his love, until just a little bit more today, we understood it. It would not just revolutionize you, It revolutionized this world. It could change this church. It would change this city. Friends, I pray that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which you've been called, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, that you are that inheritance. It is an incomparably great power for us who believe. Let that power be in you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
thankful for Paul's words here, so condensed, so concise, that you are the ruler who rules with this resurrection upside down, inside out power for all time in this present age and the one to come. Father, we don't know why the injuries and hurts are in this world and upon us, but we know that you are not distant from it. You've, you've experienced them yourself, and you've been able to take those, those hurts and turn them into beauties. And that means in our own lives that's possible too. I don't know how. I don't know why. I don't know where. I pray that we as a community can bond together cry together, lament together, not discount, but Father, see how your love for us, as your, your glorious inheritance transforms us, we can persevere in the circumstances that have been given to us. Because there's, <clears throat> because there's a glorious inheritance, <clears throat> there's a hope beyond all their hopes that you have given us. Turn our hearts and minds towards you and all that we do, we pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to our church podcast. We pray that it can serve as a resource for you as you continue processing aspects of Christianity and growing in your faith. We hope you'll subscribe to our channel if you haven't already, and we invite you to check out our website to learn more about our church and how to get connected to our family. Just visit lincolnsquare.redeemer.com.